0: So fleet the works of men Back to their earth again Ancient and holy things Fade like a dream That line by Charles Kingsley Is then underscored By opening shots with the ruins Of long-abandoned castles Shrouded in mist, and the words Though the storms of centuries have laid waste the works of men, their spirit soars on, and poets make live again the days of chivalry. The mists clear to reveal a towering castle no longer in ruin as the drawbridge lowers, and heralds issue forth to blow their trumpets. And thusly were movie audiences of ninety-nine years ago transported back to the Middle Ages to see the storybook character of Robin Hood brought to life before their eyes. to the first episode of Into the Greenwood, Splitting Arrows, where we're going to be looking at the 1922 Robin Hood film starring Douglas Fairbanks. And I have with me today my good friends Richard Hopkins Lutz, or Rick, and Matthew Monjot, or Monjot. How are you doing, guys?
1: Doing pretty well. Looking forward to watching a Robin Hood movie I've never seen before.
2: I love black and white movies, and I like Douglas Fairbanks, but I've never seen this one before. How are you guys on silent movies? They can be a lot of fun in a lot of cases. I
1: I love silent movies. I, I uh, The Chaplin, uh, Silent Era, and of course Keaton, but I'm also a big fan of German Expressionism, and all the best ones are silent, so. <laughs> There's uh, a
2: lot of great silent movies out there. I do enjoy them. Mm-hmm.
0: This film came out in 1922. It was not the first portrayal of Robin Hood on film. Robin Hood goes all the way back to 1908 with Robin Hood and His Merry Men starring Percy Stowe. There was also a silent film in 1912 starring Robert Fraser. a British film called Robin Hood Outlawed in 1912, another one in 1913, and another short film from Britain in 1913 called In the Days of Robin Hood but this is the one that is kind of considered the first theatrical feature film for Robin Hood. And certainly the one of these early Robin Hood adaptations that's easy to find. (laughs) We're gonna just be watching it on YouTube. DVDs of it are available. All these earlier ones going back all the way to 1908 are much more difficult to find. If any listeners of this show have sources, on how to view some of these early ones i'd be happy to hear about it so question for you two rick and Manjot: what do you think of when you think of the first blockbusters in cinematic history
2: for me i think of the roman epics like ben hur the ten commandments come to mind with blockbusters at least in the sense of action movies but if you go back a little bit further for mega-successful movies, there's always The Wizard of Oz or Gone with the Wind and things like that as well. So, Major, are
1: you talking about the Heston Ben-Hur? Not the yes. original Cecil B. DeMille,
2: which was a, I'm a huge I'm talking movie. about the one that you still see on TNT every so often uh, with Charlton Heston, mm-hmm. uh, not the older Ben-Hur.
1: Which I've also yeah, but, seen, which is great. So, I mean, yeah, blockbuster kind of depends on era. Mm-hmm. You know, the the days of CinemaScope and all that, and the Ben-Hur era, the Spartacus, all of that. But back in the day <laughs> of Silent Movie, you know, it was kind of a different matter. Partially because even up into the 20s and the 30s, you have people still kind of playing with what, what cinematography was the very first the very first academy award for best film went to a movie called wings which was about world war one pilots it's a good movie but it has a couple of really great shots in it that are not you know lawrence of arabia huge they're they're just very interesting from a cinematography there's a one where the camera tracks in on our protagonist and it's you go over tables and there's people kind of moving out, you know, they're doing things and it's, it's a fa- it's a great shot. You can definitely find it on YouTube. So, for me, you know, I think blockbusters as a term, you know, this kind of big, very popular, very successful film as an idea, it totally depends on the era, like what mm. that means.
0: There's certain things I think we associate with blockbusters, like big budgets, big stars, mm. lots of success in terms of popular appeal, possibly sequels, Sequels, I
1: think, is more of a thing modern. For me, you know, I think that back in the day, you know, back when blockbusters were first a thing, you know, there's no Spartacus 2. There is no, <laughs> you know, there is no uh, Lords of uh, Afghanistan
0: or anything. I think in general, you are right, but that also we kind of underestimate how many of these sorts of films actually did inspire sequels. And in fact... Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, which I'm referring to it in that particular way because that is the official title of the movie, Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, that was how it was copyrighted, has a sequel. One of the things I'm gonna ask you guys about- Of course it does. uh, Well, and the sequel does not have Douglas Fairbanks in it, it's not about Robin Hood. It is about one of the other characters. And so I'm gonna ask you guys as we're (laughs) watching the film to think about that and think which of the characters is the one that you would pick to have a sequel about. 1922, Douglas Fairbanks and Robin Hood is cited as the first film to have a gala premiere. That really? whole traditional mm-hmm. idea that we get of there being the big premiere and paparazzi and the red carpet for that kind of first showing of the film, that was started in October 1922 with Douglas Fairbanks and Robin Hood at Grumman's Egyptian Theater in Los Angeles. And it was so popular in that theater, ran for such a long time there that it became synonymous with that theater. Buses that would have stops at that place would say, this is the stop for Robin Hood. At the time it was made, it was one of the most expensive films in Hollywood. I've seen a couple of different figures for how much it cost. One was 1.4 million. Another was 950,000 or so. It's unadjusted? Correct, unadjusted. Oh Adjusted. my gosh, that's an insane 20, amount of movie of money. Yeah. In in 2021 20, dollars, that would be about 15.6 million dollars. It's also, in addition to being popular, was well received critically. It was directed by Alan Dwan. It's produced by Douglas Fairbanks. Douglas Fairbanks also helped write it, as well as starring in it. Other stars include... Wallace Beery as King Richard the Lionheart, Sam the Grassy as Prince John, Enid Bennett as Lady Marion Fitzwalter, Paul Dickey as Sir Guy of Gisborne, William Lowry as the High Sheriff of Nottingham, Willard Lewis as Friar Tuck, Alan Hale as Little John, Bud Geary as Will Scarlet, Lloyd Talman as Alan Adale, and Billy Bennett as the servant to Lady Mary. It had huge sets. Um, some of which were designed by architect Lloyd Wright, the son of his more famous father, Frank Lloyd Wright. There's a urban legend that was going around for some decades about the film having been lost until the 1960s, but that myth has since been debunked. The film was available in various archives. It just wasn't being widely screened. Um, So somehow the uh, rumor started that it was lost. I think that covers most of the factoids I wanted to go over beforehand. Anything else you guys want to uh, say regarding your expectations for the film?
1: I expect it to be a fun romp, at the very least. Douglas Fairbanks was famous for his stunts.
2: Mm-hmm. And just yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing the action. I often think the action shots in some of these older movies are more impressive than the stuff that we get today knowing that there was no CGI involved in any of this.
1: Well, and and that's very key for the archery stuff, because, you know, that, that's the thing, is, is right up into the 50s, you had directors, when they did, when archery tricks were happening, they were trick archer. Sometimes you'd have a, an arrow on a wire, but quite often it was just a guy who was really, really good with a bow shooting at a guy with pads and, and the like. And Akira Kurosawa famously did this to, uh, to Shira Mofuni, so... No, I, I'm expecting, I'm expecting good things, especially since you know this was back when, it, back when the studio system was kind of still f- forming as a thing, and so actually, you, directors actually had a lot more, crave control over things, and so, I'm also looking forward to seeing the skipper's dad, <laughs>
0: <You know? laughs> Alan no, Ladd. Right. The 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 skipper, as in the skipper from Gilligan's Island, his father is the actor Al- Alan Hale, who plays Little John in this movie. All right. For those of you who are listening along, we're going to stop our recording now. You'll hear a brief musical interlude, and then we'll come back to give our thoughts about the film. If you want to watch it yourself, it is widely available on YouTube. Just search for Douglas Fairbanks Robin Hood. It'll come right up. See you guys after the film. So how did the movie fare compared to your expectations? And was there anything that really surprised you, especially in regards to how the main characters were depicted?
2: I, it actually beat my expectations. I expected it to be good. But most silent movies just, you know, well they're not made at quite the same skill level as later movies, because as Rick has brought up, they're still feeling out what you can do with the camera at that point. And this has a lot of really good cinematography. The sets in it were stunning, huge, and uh, gorgeous. The costumes were really fantastic and well used so that you could tell this guy from that guy, not just based on their face, but on their outfits and whatnot. They didn't just put them in the same thing. They elaborated it very well. But I was surprised that in this movie, having grown up with the Kevin Costner version of Robin Hood, how minor a character Sheriff Nottingham was in this movie. He was like, and that's a guy who's here too. Yeah, the
1: the Sheriff Nottingham was, he was a nothing character. He was not named. He had, there there was an unnamed henchman of Prince John that actually got way more Uh, Plot importance than the actual sheriff. Like, like why they didn't have the sheriff do that? I'm, I'm not quite sure. There were a couple things. Number one, and I mentioned this in the when we were watching it, the characterization of Marion. She's actually like so. They fit her within the gender role of a, a a maid at court and everything, but she is an active protagonist. You know, she stands up to Prince John like. Right into his face, like stands up to him. She, you know, puts Gisborne in his place once or twice. She's doing things. When she realizes that John isn't going to stop, she's the one that actually masterminds the plot to get, She, she's the one who tells John, John, little John, to go. Hey, go tell Robin about what's going on because it's ain't cool. And then you know when they're showing up, getting ready to to arrest her, she's like, ah, uh, you know, what, I'm out. You know, and runs. He's not helpless. She's not a fighter. She's not a warrior. It's not that kind of modern take on in, on an independent woman. It's an in, it's interesting because she is this, like I said, she's this active protagonist, an independent. I'm going to say strong, but you know, kind of not in the modern sense within the within the defined gender role of the setting. A couple of other things, uh, particularly you know, in regards to main characters, the fact that so many of the named Mary men were kind of, and also, uh, you know, <laughs> you know yeah. Alan Adele is just there. Will Scarlet is just jumps out and, you know, freaking brains a guy. I mean, it's like, oh, okay, they're also there.
0: Yeah, it, it feels a little bit like fan service. Yes. They want to make us sure that we know this is a Robin Hood movie. These are Robin Hood names that you know of, and I think it's sort of the same thing with the Sheriff of Nottingham, where... We know you expect these characters to be here, so we are going to say, yes, they are here, but they're totally irrelevant to the story that we care about and the characters that we're having driving our plot.
1: Characterization-wise, I say one thing that actually was, while there was a grimness at times, it, it was not kind of in this modern grittiness, but overall, the characters were very boisterous. Robin and Richard, especially, you know, they they laughed deeply, you know, these these great belly laughs, you know, you could see, you could feel them, you could almost, you could really hear them in your mind, you know, you could could hear them laughing and joculating and 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 everything when they were hanging out with one another and doing things. The the merry
2: men well, were really merry men. I mean, they, they were literally skipping and prancing through the woods. Yes.
1: Yes, we were talking about that. How they they were literally, like literally, you know, Robin comes along. He he does this thing, and he's he's literally prances away from the soldiers, you know, into the woods after escaping the castle. It was just like it was like watching my
0: dog, my Sheltie, play Robin Hood. It felt like a parody. It was so over the top. How yes, much they were. Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah. Well, but you know, that's the other thing is, and and, and I think I I also comment on this. This is probably the single most physical performance of Robin Hood I've ever seen put to film. Just the physicality that Fairbanks puts into it. Just this casual athleticism was the phrase that came to mind. Just uh, why, why walk when you can leap? Why leap when you can jump? It was like watching Bruce Lee, you know, <laughs> just the, kind of that sheer yeah. energy that he brought
2: to the park. He's like a coiled spring. And there was a lot of ready to launch,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and there was a lot of wall climbing in this movie. And in 1922, that didn't mean ropes and whatnot. That meant climbing the wall because yeah. you, you you just went and did that. And there were several places where it's like he's really up high. If yeah. if you let go, that's gonna be a, gonna be
0: finding your next movie star. At moments like once where he hoists up a guy over his head and throws him into a moat. That's, funny. <laughs> yeah. That's a dummy that he's throwing into the moat. But most of the time, you can really tell that, yeah, that is Douglas Fairbanks doing these very physically impressive stunts.
1: Well, and there's, there's a point where Marion falls out of a window and he catches her. And, you know, they climb back up. You're seeing, uh, you know, pro- she's probably a 95-pound woman, but he's just one-arming her. I mean, just... Yeah. Seriously, you know, I didn't see a, I didn't see a cable or a string or a rope or anything, or any, or any, you know, any tell of that. And he wasn't the only one there. We commented when Richard just picks up John.
0: It's just like, "Yep, oh, you're going outside, bud." I'm pretty wrong. sure that was
1: on a string, but
0: yeah, that one definitely was because it was hilarious. At the very end of the movie, King Richard is reclaiming his throne from Prince John. And then he literally picks up his brother by the scruff of the neck like he's a kitten and then hoists him into the air and walks through the castle with him, dropping him off the end of the drawbridge before they then close the drawbridge on Prince John. It is, it is like Fred Flintstone dropping the dinosaur Dino out of the door at the end of those <laughs> cartoons.
1: That sheer physicality, that was very... Like, I was expecting stunts and everything but it was beyond that honestly the stunts you could tell they were stunts but they felt like well and this is something you see in a lot of silent movies because when somebody wanted a stunt especially you know you see this in Buster Keaton and everything you know it's just okay we're gonna do that now and then they just do it you know (laughs) know, there's there's no you know you could tell they plan it and everything but it's it's still you know there's no Yo, that was not a stop, man. That was Douglas Fairbanks. You could see his face the whole time.
0: <laughs> also, a lot laxer uh, safety regulations at that time. The more they can get away with. Yeah, a
2: little bit. In uh, one of the first times, Robin infiltrates the castle and he's running away from the guards and he slides down this curtain down into the courtyard. And it's probably 30, 40 feet down. And the way he does it is he just slides down the curtain and it's like, Yeah, that was clearly just them sliding down a curtain. And I'd be scared to do that if it was me. Yeah. Mm. So
0: along those lines, one of the the questions I have for you are, what are the best examples of swashbuckling?
1: I'm going to vote, honestly, towards the end, where Robin, he's on the top, that crenellated top of the wall, and he like, run, I think he's running out. He runs right out of Maid Merit, runs out of the room. And there's two guys there and he starts fighting them. And then another guy comes up and he's suddenly fighting like, uh, like a club in one hand and a sword in the other. And he's just like going, and he's, they're 180 from one another. And that was, a, I liked that. That was a really impressive, impressively done fight scene from a swashbuckling standpoint, you know, from that, that sheer over the top it was fantastic.
0: Yeah, that's that's the moment I was going to pick also, where he's fighting off two people simultaneously in a manner that looks extremely ambidextrous. Yes.
2: Do you have a, a favorite swashbuckling moment, Manja? I was going to pick that one, but to be contrary, I'll pick a different one. There's the scene where Robin is fighting a dozen guys, and he's holding the doorway, off against a dozen guys and he's jumping in and out of the doorway, in and out of the doorway so they can't get to him. That's in the same scene, essentially, but a little later on. It's just really impressive with the choreography that goes
0: on with that. I would only also want to mention, because I think it's worth mentioning, when he is infiltrating the castle by himself, can't wait for backup, knows he has to rescue Marion and the guards see him coming and start to raise the drawbridge, and he just jumps oh, yeah. onto the drawbridge and then starts hoisting himself up the chain. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. And, and, uh, but, you know, that's, that is one thing I will say is, and this is something that I think is a silent era thing. The, the actual confrontations with bad guys is actually very short. So, yeah. for instance, his fight with Guy of Gisborne is—it's momentary, you know, almost by comparison. You know, it, it is less than a minute, probably, might even be less than thirty seconds. And I mean, it's—it's a—it's a great fight. It's, it's brutal and and gruesome, but it's you know, not in a bloody way, as I just you know, as we talked about at the time. Uh, but it is—it's very short. There's no monologuing because you know you can't have that bantering back and forth fight as much you know that you see with errol flynn and and you know even in modern modern movies
0: yeah the climactic mono a mono fight at the end which you basically expect in some form in almost every action film especially a swashbuckling one is as you say just a matter of seconds and there's more drama that occurs after that with robin surrendering and about to be executed and richard coming and saving him but none of those are the climactic fight moment yeah
1: and and this is somebody who you watch the movie they are deadly enemies they these are men who hate one another who mm-hmm. in a in in a talkie in a later in a movie made even 20 years later or 15 years later they would have had that kind of banter you know if this was errol flynn versus you know well just to pick errol flynn and basil Rathbone, that movie's. Only what, 20 something years later?
0: That was 38 and this was 22.
1: Oh, so less than, less than 20 years later. Only about 15 years later, 15, 16 years later. And that is a much longer fight. There's much more banner in between. And I think there's a difference in that silent versus talky way of composing a fight, way of composing a movie.
0: All right, so this is a Robin Hood movie One of the things synonymous with Robin Hood is archery. Any especially impressive archery feats, the name of these movie review episodes I'm calling (laughs) Splitting Arrows because the splitting of an arrow is such a cinematography based thing, a thing we expect out of Robin Hood movies. But there was no archery tournament in this film.
1: There was barely any archery. There was a few arrows shot into doors or doorposts. The closest thing you have to a feat of archery was him and I, I think it was Will Scarlet
2: logs up and shooting them with arrows.
1: Yeah, that was him and Will Scarlet, and that was I, I couldn't tell whether that, that that was probably done with probably done by a trick archer. Yeah, you know? that was on
0: camera. I'm I'm dubious about whether or not they actually pulled off an actual trick archery shot for that one.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm yeah, and it's un it's unclear. You you can't really see much. It, yeah, there was not a whole lot of archery. I kept waiting for there to be, because part of the thing is, is that, yeah, literally that was the only nod to Robin being a good archer, was that. Well,
0: about an hour and a half into the movie, when he finally starts being Robin Hood, and he's stealing some money from the tax collector, he shoots a bag of gold out of the tax collector's
1: hand. There was that. There was that.
2: But the most iconic use of a bow and arrow is when he used the bow and arrow to hang Prince John up in the door jam. I think that was the tax collector. Immediately after he shoots that
0: bag of gold out of the tax collector's hand, he ditches his bow. And he, he does it in a very unique and creative, interesting way, hanging up that tax collector, like you mentioned. But it is a little weird that he immediately ditches his bow as he capers around through the castle. Yeah.
1: Never mind that, how did, this snowman nerd learned to be quite so good with a bow. The English longbow was not especially prevalent as a knightly weapon at that point, or ever. But, and especially since we're seeing crossbows, it felt like they kind of included a little bit of archery because they had
2: to. And
0: that's a good point, because we have most of the movie occurring what, with him being this knight, and there's never any concept of him being an archer until mm-hmm. well into the movie. Yeah. Uh, Monjat, you said you had to go pretty soon? Yes. All right. Well, let me get your your answers to a couple of these questions then. So, what was the wittiest bit of banter? Which is a hard question to answer during a silent movie, but do you have one?
2: I do. I'm actually going to go back to the earliest part of the movie with Maid Marian when she takes her favor that Guy Gisborne is asking for this plot. It just hands it off to one of her handmaids who takes it off after yanking it back out of his hand when he tried to seize it. It was all visual, but it was done with that same witty flair that you would expect in these kind of movies. Yeah. Yeah. Love
1: that, love that. That was seriously one of the best, fantastic.
0: All right, Manjot. Who wins the Merriest Man Award? That is the character, aside from Robin himself, that you would want as a member of your outlaw gang if you were forming one, and why?
2: Oh, uh, then in that case, I'm going to say Little John for sure. I mean, he rides across France by himself, bends bars, nurses Robin back to health, is quintessentially mighty as an oak tree and undyingly loyal. Little John is the member of the Merriest Men who is definitely characterized in this movie. Whereas the others are fun, but brief. Yeah, you don't get a lot of character
0: with him in terms of his motivations, but he comes through. He's loyal. He does, as you said, literally bends bars to get them out of prison. So useful in a pinch, caring. We see him looking out for Maid Marian while Robin is away. And then of course, as you said, nursing Robin back to health as well. I think that's a good call, my pick as well. Rick, do you have a same pick or a different one?
1: Oh, I liked Little John a lot. Probably the second most characterized one in this movie was of the Merry Men, the actual Sherwood bandits. Friar Tuck did get a bit. I would have to say, though, for who I would want uh, in my in my outlaw gang, it would be Little John in this movie. He was, mm. he was, he was pretty awesome as a sidekick. He was a proper sidekick.
0: And I'd have to give a, a very close second place to Maid Marion, as we mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. Extremely useful and forthright, proactive. She doesn't fake her own death with assistance from anyone else. That is purely her own work there. Well, uh, a little
1: bit of help from her handmaiden, but
0: yeah. Well, yeah, she, she helps sell the story, but it's not she like did. some guy shows up and says, here, let me help you fake your death. No, that is her and her ma- handmaiden take care of that themselves. Manjot, another question for you. I'm phrasing this one as, on a scale of one to 10, how robbed were the rich? So that is, how do you think Robin Hood fared as a champion of the oppressed? With a one being a Robin that was either unconcerned or ineffectual in terms of helping the oppressed people of England? and a 10 being he's basically
2: Bernie Sanders, but with a longbow. I'm going to give him an eight. He definitely was giving to the poor. He definitely was robbing the rich. He wasn't keeping things. He was trying to set things right, but he certainly wasn't a Bernie Sanders with a bow in that he was going to reverse the social order. He was just going to go back to what it was under King Richard. It wasn't, a lift up the peasants, form a new peasant army kind of thing. But still, you definitely saw him literally showering the peasants with gold. So, a good solid eight. Rick, what's your rating there?
1: Yeah, I'm going to go lower, and for some of the same reasons that he cites, I'd put it at about a five. Maybe a four. We get could, a, again, a few nodding scenes of robbing, robbing people. Notably, you know, breaking into the castle and stealing directly from the treasury. And, you know, then he does give to the poor, including a very upset child and a bunch of people. You know, we don't see him breaking people out of jail who were wrongfully arrested. You know, we see him recruiting people away, but, you know, and he goes in and he takes the town of Nottingham. But when the soldiers are out, but he didn't do anything, You know, didn't go in and do anything before that. And this is, again, kind of where we see, because they don't develop out, for instance, the Sheriff of Nottingham and that whole thing, we don't see what he's doing for that year. They skip a year of him being Robin Hood. We just get kind of told, oh, yeah, oh, that that Robin Hood guy, he's pretty cool. And and at the end of the day, he is still reinforcing feudalism.
0: (laughs) Reinforcing it a lot. I am also giving it a four and was considering possibly going lower. The only reason I'm not going lower is because when he is introduced in terms of there's this outlaw captain named Robin Hood, it is with a peasant who is being very grateful as he is sharing some wealth that was just redistributed to him with his family. But so much we see of his actions as Robin Hood are built around the idea of he's working as King Richard's man. Yeah. The symbol that he uses to recruit people is the three lions of Richard. There's this oath that they swear about holding England for Richard. Even in their hideout on the rock wall, there's a giant painting of those three lions. Yeah. It is yeah. emphasized way more than we're doing this to help people we're doing this to help Richard.
1: Yeah, they're not they're not doing it. They're helping people because it counters John, not because they're helping people.
0: You know? I'd be a little more charitable about that. They there is, as Manjot said, there are definitely scenes where it is shown, oh, it is established people are oppressed. It is shown that Robin is stealing the tax collector's money he is giving some money back to people but there's very little emphasis on it very little shown in terms of how it's actually improving people's lives
2: that's why i would still give him an eight though because i would consider anything five or below meaning that he wasn't doing anything for the poor really at all or was being ineffectual but i guess maybe i'm just being more terrible in my rating system he Mm. wasn't overturning it I'm also thinking, though, of that scene in the Kevin Costner movie where you find out he's been robbing all these people, but keeping all the gold for himself. And it's like, well, at least he wasn't keeping the gold for himself like Kevin Costner
0: was. Well, we'll we'll get to his rating down the line, but we got a lot yeah, of movies yeah. to, get to that.
1: We're, we're we're dealing with this. I'm dealing with this one as a bottle. It's its own
0: depiction.
2: Maybe I could say a seven on that, but. <laughs> I mean, that's stuff. fair. You
0: know, you're, you're oh, allowed to have a yeah, game. You can you can assess it however feels reasonable to you. Any other points you want to hit on Manjot Any low points? Any other high points
2: you want to mention before you have to go? I would say just that I think the movie could have been a better movie if they had taken out oh I don't know thirty minutes of the crusade stuff and re- and put that into the frame of a year later put in a montage of him robbing the rich to give to the poor, taking leadership, an introductory scene to each of your men, but they spent so long on nightly, courtly politics, and that part kind of just dragged a bit, because that was more than half the movie before Robin Hood was even Robin Hood. And it's like, I get that, and I don't mind that backstory, but it was long and that dragged, and so... I would say from like minute 40 to minute, hour and 10, was like, really? This is still going? But overall, it was a silly, fun romp, and I
0: liked it. I would agree. I think the film is way too long, and most of that too long comes from how much time is spent in regards to King Richard and the Crusades. King Richard is a huge character in this movie, both Mm -hmm. literally and (laughs) in terms of amount of uh, time he gets... Yeah, he's very much presented as this larger than life character which reminds me I was going to ask earlier when we were talking about our Marius Men Award, I teased earlier that there was a sequel to this movie based on one of the characters
1: Mm -hmm. and I happen happen to know I happen to know what the sequel is Uh, do
2: you have a guess? my guess then if I was going to say who who would be a sidekick character that I would make a character out of it's either going to be Little John or King Richard. Rick, do you want to reveal? Uh, it, it is
1: actually King Richard. The movie. There's a sequel movie came out like, a year, two years later.
0: Yeah, uh, just one year later. Yeah, uh, Richard 19-
1: the Lionhearted.
0: Yeah, Wallace Berry is the name of the actor who plays King Richard in both mm-hmm. this movie and the sequel, Richard the Lionheart, which is. Built as a sequel to this movie, perhaps made because it was such a success, but that film is also based on the Walter Scott novel, The Talisman.
1: One of his best-known roles is he played uh, Long John Silver, 1934's Treasure Island. At least that, that
2: that's actually the part I know him from originally, is, is that. Yeah. All right, any last um, words, Monday? Thank you for inviting me. I very much enjoyed watching this movie with my good friends and have a good night all. Thanks. It was lots of fun. You too. All right. Backtracking
0: a little for you, Rick, did you have any favorite bits of wittiest banter? Well, so,
1: so I I did enjoy the scarf quite a bit, but I think the little bit of banter later on between Robin and John atop the wall after, Robin kind of backs up Marion rebuffing John, and that's really kind of the way it is. You know, she rebuffs him, and Robin shows up and is like, uh, "Is there a problem here?" The lady said, "No, bro." But yeah, there's that little bit of banter. Uh, Remember, I'm a prince. <laughs> what was the the, the reply? Something like,
0: "It's only the prince who has thus far forgotten."
1: Yes, that's it. There's only the, that is a, it's such a true cutting line. It's so it's so well done and fairbanks's performance when he's put on screen of the the card it's it's very well it's it's very well done it matches up very nice with the mood he puts out and everything
0: yeah you can see why he was a star we talked a lot about his physicality earlier but he also just has a good presence you know he, he stares down the prince in ways that feel convincing
1: yeah it's it's interesting because some actors when especially when you watch silent films Different actors bring different qualities to performances. Some were, you know, would be known for their intensity, their ability to kind of capture your attention as the audience and, and, and just hold it. Fairbanks brings this, this energy, this cality, but he also brings a certain amount of, a definite amount of charisma, just raw unfiltered charisma and not necessarily in a super sexual way, just in a, this is such a dynamic, you know, he comes across as such a dynamic person. So there and in the moment and a dynamo ready to, ready to act, ready to, to do whatever, you know, as so you're watching this scene between him and Prince John, and there's a very telling moment there where they're kind of physically entangled for lack of a better word and each one has their hand on their knife and you see john slowly start to slide his out and robin doesn't but you could tell robin could whip that out and slash that dude's throat before the other guy could have his knife completely out that's what he brings to that part and it's it's there in every single kind of interaction he has this this just coiled spring is not an inapt characterization
0: yeah Indeed
1: yeah
0: uh, I, I think it's also worth mentioning, and this was going to be on, on my list of, of high points during that scene we were just mentioning where he's facing down Prince John. he's wearing a ridiculous foppish costume with great big droopy sleeves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They leaned into some of the trying to make this feel and look as period as we possibly can, sort of ridiculousness with the costumes that you don't see in more modern adaptations where they have to have the characters dressed in ways that we think we will take seriously and feel very modern
1: yeah well i mean that's the thing is this is quite often a complaint of people who watch modern medieval movies is everything's brown and gray and and especially lately made of leather and awfully tight in ways that it wouldn't be in this movie you can see that there's a lot of lushness there's these fabrics that are made at least made to look embroidered there's draperies there's women's trains on their dresses are ridiculously long May Marion when she comes to meet Robin in the garden of Priory she's got this huge the train is seriously 10 feet behind her it's, it's beautiful visually you know and there's all this or, the, or at the end the scene the very end the wedding night scene very composed. She's got this beautiful long dress on, and and you've got the moonlight. It was obviously very, very set from a visual standpoint. It's a gorgeous scene. It's beautiful. Uh, but again, yes, also oh, you have the long foppish sleeves that are totally impractical and would get in your way. But you also have some ridiculous things like people wearing chainmail around all the freaking time. <laughs> you know when they shouldn't be necessarily. And things like that. But yes, no, there was obviously this attempt at accuracy for depiction. And that goes into the costumery, it goes into the sets, it goes into the even just the set dressing, you know, the you know dogs under the table. You know, we talked about that briefly. You know, there's oh look, there's dogs under the tables exactly like there would be, you know, there's a giant pheasant or something. Broasted uh, you know, on a on a table and everything. It, it was it's there it was definite consideration for trying to be as as authentic, if not accurate, as possible.
0: Yeah, and an anecdote that I shared earlier that I want to mention again in relation to that, which really hits at the idea that they at least wanted to have some sort of historicity with the movie that scene where there's these dogs at the feast. And in the movie, it's a very brief scene, King Richard eating a drumstick of something and he throws it to the dogs. And it's mostly meant as a character moment for Richard. And in what I was reading earlier, Douglas Fairbanks had one of his own dogs be there in that scene, but he learned that that breed of dog was not around during the middle ages. So he cut his own dog from the movie just for that sake of accuracy
1: yeah yeah which is not to
0: say that the movie is authentic purely accurate but they're at least going for it they want to convey that sense and that really shows throughout
1: well and some of that is also what was known in 1921 22 versus what we know a century later we're we're spoiled for archaeology these days on a certain level Movies of the time that tried to be a period accurate of things, it would there's things that they would do because that's what was thought to be accurate at the time. What we know now about the different periods of the different parts of the Middle Ages, which many people don't realize, that the term the Middle Ages is a very long period, and there's a lot of variation within there of styles and technology, and the mere fact that there's these crossbows there. There's crossbows, but there's also jousting tournaments, and also crusades, and also still a longbow culture, which the longbow culture of, of England is much narrower than people realize. 50 years after Agincourt, they were struggling to put together a hundred archers out of the hills of Wales.
0: Uh, this is before Agincourt, though. So. I, I,
1: I understand that. The thing is, is, but at the time, they didn't necessarily know that these things weren't all contemporaneous. Even if you had a researcher, even if you had somebody who was an expert in the field, this is a day and age when they didn't have as sophisticated a dating methods as we do now. So there's definitely things that we later learn are different either through archeology span or through study of text, just historical study and historic t- dating of texts by linguistic methods is not something that was as done. You know, it wasn't really a thing back then as much.
0: Speaking of linguistic methods and their attempts towards accuracy, one of the nice touches in this film is when these notes are being written back and forth between Marion and Robin when she's in England and he's in France. They show these close-ups of the paper and it is their attempt at some form of Middle English script. They yeah, then could. only show it for a little bit because then they change it to a very modern English script to make it readable for a modern audience. But they were trying to show the people writing in at least an attempt at a Middle English script and vernacular.
1: I meant to go back and okay, there we go. I've got it pulled up. It is it is in it does appear to be in an attempt of Middle English. I was wondering if it was middle if it was an attempt at Middle
0: English or at Latin
1: it does more appear to be middle to
0: early middle English. It was a nice touch and a nod to that thing you're talking about in regards to them really trying to project an idea that this is a story taking place in a different time. Yes. Yes.
1: And, and yeah, that is a gorgeous touch. And I really liked that. That was really good. As a matter of fact, I remember kind of exclaiming (laughs) like at the time, like what, what is that? <laughs> like, because if in so many movies this would have just been, oh, look, it, it's in modern English. There's these bits, these little pieces here and there, like the notes, like some of the other things, where somebody put a lot of thought and care and money and effort into trying to make something as authentic and period and appropriate as possible to the point where it's not necessarily the best choice from a movie making standpoint and these notes are a a great example of that that's the kind of thing that i'm not i'm obviously not a member of a 1920s audience but i have to wonder how much uh, a 1920s audience would have cared Mm. about that you know especially for what is Essentially, a romance and adventure movie, <laughs> you know. But it's there, and as but as a medieval nerd, I'm like, squee, I like it, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and, and enough that I want, I you know that I want to go back and I want to pause it and I want to look at that. It's this odd mix because this is the kind of thing that I wouldn't necessarily expect to see. It gives you kind of an odd differences in tone and and the whole movie is kind of full of this where there's these strange little differences in tone in places uh and some of this is coming from you know modern sensibilities some of this is looking back at movies before some of the formulas that we're used to are established like we talk a bit about pacing and everything like Seriously, hour—it's an hour and twenty minutes or whatever—until they get done with the Crusade. It's just like,
0: dear God. More scenes in the Crusades, even after yeah. that, just with only King Richard there, without Robin there too.
1: Yeah, commented partway through the movie. This actually feels like it's two movies: one that's the origin of Robin Hood, and then one that's basically the third act of a Robin Hood movie. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and well, and it so clearly has very little interest in actually really delving into the idea of being a Robin Hood movie or that origin of Robin Hood. Hence the whole, we spend an hour and 20 minutes in the build up into the Crusades and then coming back from the Crusades. And then we get just a title card a year later. There's this yeah. merry outlaw, Robin Hood. They didn't care. And yeah. this is something else I wanted to mention and I I think it really is because Douglas Fairbanks wanted to make Ivanhoe. That's something I was reading earlier that he was interested in making Ivanhoe, which is the story of a returned crusader. And one of the things I've really been looking at in terms of these Robin Hood stories is his origin story and where does Robin Hood come from, not in terms of our literature, but within the context of a story and how it's choosing to be told. In most of the versions I have been finding, I've been reading Robin Hood stories that were written around the exact same time this movie came out. And in them, he is either a kind of yeoman farmer or a nobleman sometimes, but there's never a mention of him him as a crusader. He usually breaks the law. He shoots one of the king's deer, sometimes one of the king's rangers also, and becomes an outlaw and flees into Sherwood. But in none of these versions do I see this narrative about him as a crusader, not for the other stories that were being told around the exact same time as this movie came out, which makes the fact that it is such a huge focus of this movie feel really weirdly out of place and reemphasizes the notion to my mind that Douglas Fairbanks Really had Ivanhoe in mind more than Robin Hood. And that was the story he was just more interested in telling. There's a few other ways in which it has kind of similarities in terms of mystery knights. At the beginning of this movie, made Marion as crowned the queen of love and beauty at the beginning of a tournament, which is a scene that also occurs not with Marion, but with another woman in Ivanhoe. It really feels like it is delving more into that source than it is delving into the Robin Hood stories that were being commonly told at this time.
1: Yeah, I mean, it definitely sounds like that. I do also wonder how much of this could also be attributed to something that you do see, you see in vaudeville, and you see also in some early silent movies that are adaptations, where... The movie is not made as a telling of the story. The movie is made as a visual representation of a story you, as the audience, are already kind of meant to be familiar with, mm-hmm. which we've seen. You know, you see in a few other movies. Now it's probably some combination of that. That would definitely explain the second half. Uh, the second, because the first part of that movie very much sounds like it's Ivanhoe, but then you know, the second half of the movie is kind of oh wait, this is a Robin Hood movie.
0: Fairbanks liked the idea of being Robin Hood and capering around as Robin Hood, but actually Mm -hmm. telling the story of Robin Hood didn't seem to have much appeal to him.
1: Well, and the other thing is, is that it would also explain why, for instance, the Merry Men don't really get an introduction, because you're already meant to know who they are. You know who Alan Adale is, you know who Will Scarlet is, you know who Friar Duck is. The only reason Little John gets more is Robin needed a sidekick.
0: Even then, he's Robin's squire. He is not the guy that Robin meets on the bridge in the forest in the that famous scene that most often gets told in regards to their meeting.
1: Yeah, it is, it is interesting the sheer amount of familiar pieces of the Robin Hood story that are just simply left out. The scene on the bridge, the introduction of Friar Tuck, which is usually quite a, a big scene,
0: Archery contest. The archery
1: contest was the other one I was going to mention. The archery contest, which is just not there. Any, any confrontation with the sheriff of Nottingham at all. I think, I'm not
0: sure he and the Saints even share the screen at the same time.
1: I don't think so at all. I don't think they're ever in a scene together at all. Because even at the end, the sheriff is just grabbed by some merry men and some, some outlaws, and just kind of trucked off screen. Presumably to be hung or something. Who knows? I mean, like I said, the, the last half, really the last third of that movie is, oh, wait, we should do some Robin Hood stuff. He had some people and everything, and there was a Marjorie. Okay. But even like the, the coming back of of Richard is different from what I've seen in other a lot of other adaptations of Robin Hood. It is an interesting retelling of parts of the Robin Hood story. <laughs> you know, It is a fun movie. The first part isn't a slog. It's not bad. It's just kind of like you're wondering why it's taking so long. But it, it's a lot of character establishment. It's a lot of buildup. A tremendous amount of it is actually establishing this relationship between Richard and Robin.
0: That relationship and the relationships with Guy of Gisborne, mm-hmm. too. Guy of Gisborne Which and is Gisborne and John, Guy and Gisborne and Marion, Guy and Gisborne and his rivalry with Robin. They do a lot of establishing of all that, and that works quite well.
1: Which in later things you see of Robin Hood, Robin is literally just a, a guy. Richard doesn't know him from anybody.
0: They are, they are besties. They're
1: sharing table and Oscar and Infidel together and Marching Across France together.
0: There is a shocking amount of screen time devoted to King Richard trying to get Robin Hood laid at the beginning. Yeah, of the movie.
1: They are, it is a bromance for the ages. In fact, there is more development of that bromance than there is of the romance between Robin and Marion. I think by the time they're married, they've spent a total of less than 24 hours together. (laughs) Because he wins the tournament, he receives the crown, he falls down some stairs, then he helps her rebuff John. As they're standing there, he gets struck by Cupid's arrow. He clutches his chest and says, I never knew a maid could be like you. And then he goes off to the Crusades. The next day he goes off to the Crusades. They're already kinda googly eyed at one another.
0: It's uncertain how much time they spent together later uh when she's hiding in the priory, but you certainly get the impression it's not long.
1: Well, I I got the impression they were only there for they were there for an afternoon. Because remember that one Mr. Mustache sees them, runs off, tells John, and John immediately dispatches people to go
0: it wasn't clear to me if that occasion with him catching them there was the same day when he found out that she was still alive or if that was on a later occasion.
1: No, it was on the same day. Well, because yeah. he, he had mugged that guy right beforehand and followed him to the Priory. That's how he found them. And it was at the Priory that Robin found out that Marion was alive. Yeah, that was like, it was like a few hours. And yeah. then Robin's yeah. like, oh, I'll be back before the Lark sings in the morning. No, they, like literally by the time they're married, they've known each other like twenty four hours.
2: Yeah, like if right. that.
1: All together. So it's stretched over a couple of years.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and then they're married the night that John is kicked out. Meanwhile, the bromance between him and Richard, it's like, Oh yeah, we're checking Across France. and Oh, we won a tournament. No oh, you're a of women? Have women at you. Ah, we're going to tie you to a post with a
0: scarf and have women parade past you. I'm not kidding. This happens. <laughs> you know? to, to and, the point at the end, when Robin and Marion get married on their wedding night, King Richard is trying to still hang out with Robin. The closing of- scene is him banging on the door while they're banging inside. Presumably...
1: He's like, hey, Robin, I know it's your wedding night, but, uh, you know, come on, let's hang. It fades to black while he's still banging on the
0: door. In terms of the internal consistency of the movie, it works in terms of how they had this very close relationship. So that whole thing with him coming back to England and trying to fight to secure King Richard's throne from John's treachery, And the thing we were kind of complaining about earlier in terms of how much focus there is on that, how Robin Hood is using the symbols of King Richard, how he's recruiting an army for protecting Richard's throne. It works for the internal consistency of the movie because that relationship between him and King Richard is so developed. It makes it unsatisfying as a Robin Hood movie in my mind. I think overall,
1: I would put this at about a three- as a robin hood movie out of 10 it has a few of the tropes but not most of the really important ones are not they're either not present or they are very minimally given lips service okay. to but as an actual movie it's quite good you know i'd put it as about a seven seven and a half as an actual just fun movie if you've got two plus hours to to spend watching a fairly good action adventure movie and can handle old school silent movie pacing it's really good i mean it's got some fantastic action scenes in it not just the stunt stuff yeah, we've we talked about a little bit about some of the physicality and some of the fight stuff for instance there's when the tax collector gets literally hung uh, not not hung from the neck he's hung from the waist but uh, by a longbow there's that. There's the the part at the end with the two henchmen being trussed up uh, by ropes from the ceiling and just smacked into one another. This yeah. is not a fight scene, by the way. This is the celebration, and they're doing this as the celebration over like a dinner. Uh, you know? <laughs> but there's also uh, you know the fight with Guy of Gisborne, which is it's very short. We talked about there there's no back and forth, there's no monologue, but it is a very powerful and effective fight scene of two characters that hate one another. That, that yeah. Hate hate like have mutual just utter despisement of one another. And it has a gruesome death in it that is bloodless. You see no bl- there is no blood in this movie. Not a bit. No, no, sorry. When Robin gets shot by the crossbow, you see some blood.
0: Richard in terms of that bromance mm-hmm. gets some blood on his hands yes. when he sees that wound after Guy of Gisborne brought him in as a deserter. Guy of Gisborne by the way, is in, speaking of both that hate and that bromance, Guy of Gisborne is insisting multiple times to the king that Robin be put to death as a deserter and the king refuses to do that because he loves Robin so much.
1: Yeah. Gisborne dies a, t- a terrible, I will not say how, Please watch it. it. It's actually it's a superbly done scene. But yeah, there's there's no blood in this movie aside from that. Aside from it being used symbolically there with this scene with Richard and everything. Like I said, it's quite a good movie. The some some of the cinematography is excellent. The sets are amazing. And there's several parts where you could tell something is a set and not a matte painting, not something where they're doing a mask and everything above a certain point. Is a matte painting. We talked about before the movie that this was an extravagantly budgeted movie for the time. And they built these massive sets and it shows, you know, you can really see the difference. But also, you know, like the costumes so much, it's everywhere. And then they're costuming out these extras with quite a bit and everything.
0: It's, yeah, there's scenes that have over a thousand extras in them,
1: mm-hmm. all in costume. And yeah, no, it's, 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 It's a fun movie, but as a Robin Hood movie,
0: not so much. Yeah, I I would agree with your assessment. It is, on its own merits, a very fun, interesting film that I would recommend. As an adaptation of Robin Hood, it is extremely lackluster.
1: Yes. I think it's definitely, a lot
0: of that probably boils down to the Ivanhoe,
1: Douglas Fairbanks observation.
0: I really have to suspect that's at least part of what was going on there. Yeah. 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 Telling the story of a Robin Hood as a social hero robbing from the rich and giving to the poor was clearly not on his agenda. That wasn't the thing that he cared about doing. He was much more interested in doing a fun medieval action movie.
1: Yeah. It was not a a priority, the Robin Hood part. Might have been just the way he could get the, the money to make it. Could be. But you know, that's the thing is is that every Robin Hood movie tends to be these action adventure romps i mean that's kind of what the
0: point of them is for better or for worse <laughs> it's why one of the questions i have is best example of swashbuckling because you expect swashbuckling to occur in a robin hood movie and this and movie disappoint
1: it did not disappoint there's plenty if you are a fan of swashbuckling absolutely absolutely some great scenes particularly you know latter half of that movie third of that movie some great swashbuckling don't come to it for the archery, but. <laughs> come for the squash buckling <laughs> and most of the performances are that very broad very overly emoted staged to silent
0: era of acting that you have they work all right i think that wraps up our discussion thanks Indeed. for joining us in this viewing of douglas fairbanks in robin hood yes and that
1: is the title it is not robin hood Featuring Douglas Fairbanks, it is Robert, Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood is the full title. If you look it up on Wikipedia, that's what it comes up as. That's true.
0: All right. Well, take it easy, my friend. Thanks You're for good. joining us here for a few hours in the Greenwood. Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood has some surprising complexities when we consider it as an adaptation. On one hand, it is bucks the conventional tellings of the time by putting so much emphasis on the character as a knight and a crusader. He wins a jousting tournament, but not an archery contest, for example. In fact, we don't even see him holding a bow until well over halfway through the film. While the notion of Robin as a returned crusader has become more or less the standard now, it very much wasn't at the time. I've read a variety of narratives from around and before the 1922 release of this film, and in them, Robin Hood might be either a dispossessed nobleman or a yeoman. But this is the earliest interpretation I've ever seen in which Robin Hood was a crusader before becoming an outlaw. If any of you listening know of an earlier account with with the returned crusader narrative, please send me a message at intogreenwood at gmail.com to tell me all about it. You can also reach the podcast on Twitter or Facebook under the handle at Intogreenwood. If, in su- if you're interested in supporting the show and getting access to some fun bonus content and rewards, please go to patreon.com intogreenwood. Right now, we're building towards the goal of being able to put 10% of all proceeds towards the charity Trees, Water, and People. Into the Greenwood is produced and edited by me, Thaddeus Papke. Our theme music is by Plastic Three. I hope you'll join us again in the Greenwood sometime soon. We're going to pause our recording. You'll hear a brief musical interlude if you want to watch the film yourself. Widely available on YouTube. Search for Douglas Adams Robin Hood and it'll come right up. Douglas Um, Fairbanks,
1: not Adams.
2: (laughs) It would be a much different film. (laughs) That would be a very different film. Okay, now I want to see that Douglas Adams take on Robin Hood. That would be hilarious. That would be very good. You want to re record that bit? (laughs) Oh, editing.